The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Please note that this episode contains discussions on domestic violence, sexual assault, and suicide. For Berkshire County residents who have been impacted by domestic and sexual violence, please reach out to the Elizabeth Freeman Center at 1-866-401-2425. For those outside of this area, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Also, if you or someone you know has suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBRFM Pittsfield with Roberta McCulloch-Dews of the mayor's office in the city of Pittsfield. Thanks for tuning in. So today we have with us Chantelle McFarlane, a Pittsfield resident and local performer, singer, and songwriter. Chances are you just may have heard her enchanting and melodic voice as she is a mainstay in many of the venues throughout the Berkshires. Early in her career, she has sung songs for a kid's album for PBS and Sesame Street. Who knew? And beyond her beautiful music, Chantel's story is a complex series of trials and lots of tribulations. So we're talking depression, domestic violence, homelessness, and sickness. However, hers is also a story of triumph and finding one's personal truth. Today, Chantel is comfortable sharing her experiences toward healing in hopes that it can help someone else. So Thank you, Chantel, for being here and your uh, authenticity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If I ever need uh, an autobiography, or <laughs> I'm like, Roberta, I was like, you may be <laughs> the wordsmith of my life. <laughs> All right, well, you know how to, where to reach oh, like, me. I'm so excited. Like, I want to know more. Like, who, who, who is that? <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> goodness oh my goodness okay so all right so for folks who don't know Chantel is she's actually one of a dynamic duo because she's a twin Mm -hmm. and her Mm -hmm. sister is Sherelle Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sherelle. Oh, yeah, we got to give those accolades. That's right. Oh, Dr. Yeah. Sherelle. So, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is when I was little, I was like fascinated by twins. I used to, there was a mm-hmm. book series called like Sweet Valley High. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just love that book mm-hmm. series. And I was like, ah, it must be so much fun to be a twin. Mm-hmm. You can like wear the same clothes and, mm-hmm. you know, trick people out. Oh, yeah. Did you guys do that? So when we were in high school, so Sherelle is significantly smart, more okay. intelligent than, than I am. So when we were in school, I would want to like switch and do things uh-huh. like that. She never did because for her, like if we were, if it was a test day, uh-huh. you know, she was like, if she got a hundred, she was, she failed. She was like extra credit. What can I do? Right. You know? So if I took a test and got a 98, you know, she. You're messing she, up her, yes, her yes. stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So one time we did it. And I think it was a psychology class, which yeah. ironically, Sherelle is a social worker, mm-hmm. you know. So I went to the class and I asked a question and the teacher was like, you're not Sherelle. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, how do you know? And she was like, Sherelle would never ask that question. <laughs> Whoops. Gotta go. <laughs> yeah. yeah so it was obvious, you know, that I, that I didn't know. But mm-hmm. yeah. Did you guys dress alike? So when we were really little, my mm-hmm. mom did dress us alike. And I think as we've gotten older, mm-hmm. she has wanted to look more alike and to stay more similar. Okay. Versus, you know, my hair is usually very short or yeah. shaved. Mm-hmm. You know, she has long, luscious curls. Yes. Right. So I, I feel like it's maybe more of me trying to break a little bit out of the mm. twin mold. Yeah. I guess you have like a built-in best friend, built-in Always. sister. Always. I mean. Was always easy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Because you but there was always a support system. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes I I always think, you know, that we were born together mm-hmm. because necessity, you know, yeah. life kind of put us in positions where we really needed that mm-hmm. that anchor in one another. Mm. Um, and thankfully we managed to traverse life without both of us being down at the same time. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there was always kind of a um a built-in, yeah. you know, fallback kind of. That's so important, you know, uh, 
And what a what a great gift. Mm. That's an awesome gift. Mm. So, you know, you guys were, are not Pittsfield natives. You live you live in Pittsfield now mm. and you've been here for a while. And, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, your, your journey to Pittsville, leaving and then coming back. Mm-hmm. But you're actually from Chicago. Mm-hmm. All right. Born and raised. Born and raised. Mm-hmm. Deep mm-hmm. roots. I know your parents are from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, all, of, all of their brothers and sisters, all of their family. Sherelle and I were the only two. Really? Before my, my cousin is maybe, uh, she's a little more than 10 years younger yeah. than me. But before her, yeah. we were the only people in the family born up up north. What so. made them go north? Industry. You oh. know, my my grandmother picked cotton. Okay. You know, so her mother picked cotton. Yeah. And then her mother's mother was a slave. Whoa. So she mm. moved north because of industry being Was that a part work. of the Great Migration? I believe so, because I actually, in, in talking to many people that are from Chicago and being older and people talk about heritage and where they're mm-hmm. from, a lot of people that live in Chicago, their families are from Arkansas, Mississippi, yeah, Oklahoma. That's right. And so there was a big time where in the South, let's say in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, mm-hmm. the only thing you could do was be a maid, mm-hmm. you know, work in someone else's home mm-hmm. or pick cotton in a field. Mm. So if you wanted to have any kind of life or any kind of chance, the, the only way that you were going to get out of poverty was to go north. Right. So what people often didn't know is you were just trading a southern style of poverty, which often included extreme racism mm. for a northern poverty, which may have had less racism, but was still poor and non the less. Mm-hmm. And so I think about cities like Chicago, who used to, well, and still do, hail Mayor Daley, who was a machine, yeah. you know, as, as being someone who changed things for African Americans. However, when you look at what he did with the cities, the creation of the ghettos, mm. now what we know as ghettos, right. was created by Mayor Daley as mm. an opportunity to give minorities a place to live where they can be amongst themselves, be yeah. amongst like people. So then when you start to realize how education works, how funding and all of that works, putting yeah. all of these people who are underserved, underprivileged, and poor in a neighborhood now means when their kids are going to school, that right. school is poor, it's underfunded, and thus the cycle of poverty continues. So Mayor Daley was systemically, you know, those choices oppressed black mm. people in Chicago. And for a lot of my life, younger, let's say in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of gang violence. Mm. Where did of, you grow up in Chicago? Which on the south side. South Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, which now it's kind of like parts of the West Side are, mm-hmm. are, are a little bit, you know, more mm-hmm. intense. But we lived right off of 79th Street, if you know anything about I don't. Chicago. I don't know Chicago <laughs> at all. Yeah, um, 79th Street is like the, um, you know, it, it's everything. It's <laughs> Any ev- and everything goes down there. Is it like... Everything like good or everything? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, no, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, which way are we going with everything? Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's all of the, uh-huh. you know, the things that you hear, the horrific things mm. in the news. That's usually where it's it's happening. Oh man, I mean, yeah, yeah it's um, you're 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 right. It that 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 move to the north for so many mm-hmm. um it was, it was right and it was there was the promise of opportunity but i think like you said when when they found a different form mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. um subjugation right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was not um it was life was not easy no and um you know people come with hopes and dreams mm-hmm. and then you know those those uh, mm-hmm. built-in systemic barriers. Mm-hmm. You're still capped. Yeah, you know? a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, how how did you your your family? How did your family um, navigate that terrain? Mm. I, it was probably different for each generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my grandmother had a, a certain way of handling it. Um, I think for many people, it was like the the racism was just accepted. You know, it was something mm. I actually you know have a therapist now and I was you know telling her something that happened in my childhood and she was like that was horrific and I had never thought about it as like a negative thing it was just something that was just common you know racism and things like that were just Mm -hmm. commonplace Mm -hmm. so we weren't allowed to be in specific neighborhoods you couldn't go to certain places and even now sometimes I go to Chicago and because I live here Mm -hmm. you know when I go it's almost like I've forgotten that I'm that I'm black Mm -hmm. you know so then I walk into a restaurant and everyone looks up and then I'm like but what if you were a black person that was not from the area and you went to that same restaurant same experience and and so 
Wow. So how would you know then? Like, so if, if like for someone who doesn't, who, if you don't have that, that wherewithal that comes from that historical mm-hmm. knowledge, mm-hmm. how would you know not to go you there? You learn when you walk in and they don't want you. Mm. Yeah. And that still happens today. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are still neighborhoods that are not integrated. Mm-hmm. So like the South side is mostly mm-hmm. black, mostly minority. And there's even segregation amongst the different minorities. So you may have like there's an area like Cicero near Midway, mm-hmm. which has become largely Hispanic. It yeah. used to be a black area. Yeah. So even the minorities don't really live together. And then you have the north side, which is where you will find more inclusion. Okay. So the city is like, it's, it's so segregated still that it's like even people who are, let's say if you are um, gay or if you are LGBTQ or whatever, yeah. you're you're not accepted in, in certain areas in the same way that, you know, a black person wouldn't be accepted. Mm. Um, so there's still a lot of um, segregation in the city for sure. Hmm. And I, I look at it now as an mm. adult, I understand it. And I will say that a lot of it is voluntary. There's a lot of willful, um, you mm-hmm. know, decision so, to be a part. So considering then that you had this um, this upbringing and this, this, your community was like this, when you left Chicago, your family moved from Chicago in 1998 and they moved to mm-hmm. Pittsfield, was it looked upon as a relief or what was the reason for coming to Pittsville? So my dad was coming because he was taking um, second church. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was the pastor there for a few years. So okay. that's why we relocated. And it was major culture shock. Mm-hmm. I actually remember being in school and our teacher, um, it was like the end of sixth grade. Maybe we had one or two months left of sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and our teacher was under the impression that Sherelle and I were um, behind or that we, we were like delayed. Yeah. But the issue was there was a language barrier. Mm-hmm. You know, that the voice and the accent that I use now was what I learned to, to fit in. But it's not my natural accent. What was your natural Very accent? Very Southern. Really? <clears throat> Very Southern. Mm. And so it's funny, sometimes I listen to my mom, and one day I had got in this apartment in Annapolis, Maryland, which Mm -hmm. is like a really affluent area. So I was like, oh, mom, I got this apartment. It's so nice, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, girl, you're living high on the hog. And I was like, what? And so she was like, high on the hog. And I was like, spell it. I thought she was saying hound over hog. She was saying high on On the the hog. hog. Yes. Yes. And I had never heard that before. But it's, it's interesting to me how since living up here and losing the accent, Oftentimes, well, I wouldn't mm. say losing, but it's now because I, I haven't used it in so long. Yeah. You know, when I'm with my family, it does come out more because mm-hmm. it's natural to talk That's like, right. like them. Versus I realize if I speak like that with other people, it does pre- prevent or present some kind of a language barrier because people can't always understand you. Mm-hmm. There's certain vernacular that we use in Chicago mm. and things that are used here, like wicked being a good thing mm-hmm. or saying some, something is like. Don't mad. they say wicked in in Boston? I think so. They say like wicked yes. means like good, I yes. guess. Yes. And in Chicago, yeah. that, that was not a thing. Yeah. Like if something's wicked, like it is bad. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. We're talking yeah. bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but here, wicked yeah. is like, oh, man, that was wicked fun. Or that yeah. was wicked good. Yeah. So there was little things, um, words that were different. And then that on top of how strong my accent was. And I didn't understand the teachers. Mm. So my mom was like, if you give them a written test, like you're going to find, you know, my children are probably the smartest people in class. So they gave us a test and come to find out we actually were eligible to move ahead in grades. Okay. But we were socially not ready to go from sixth grade to eighth grade. Okay. You know, so we kind of stayed and matriculated because we were in private school Mm -hmm. um, in Chicago. So Chicago is very... Um, it's racially segregated, but also economically segregated. Mm. So we had a little bit of privilege because my mom had an executive job. Mm-hmm. She worked for the mayor downtown. She was an accountant at the, the public library. Yeah. She was a manager. Mm. So there was some affluence, you know, right. in that. So she was able to afford the tuition. Mm. So we had the ability to go to schools that were typically not integrated. Right. So this one school we went to... Um, wasn't integrated at all and I believe either our year or the year before us was the first time that they started to let minorities come in so I don't know if you remember in the 80s and the 90s Mm -hmm. there was a big push for 
um, these more affluent schools to allow more minorities in, and there mm. was funding that was given to schools for meeting like a certain percentage. It's still a thing now. Like, yeah. You know, there's a certain percentage of different ethnic groups that, you know, you're supposed to have in order to, you know, keep up with certain funding demands. That's, in, you know, I... Where I went to school, we actually it was it was actually majority black mm-hmm. because it was in Melbourne in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, I that was for elementary school. So I my experience um, for elementary school is different. Mm-hmm. And then middle school, same thing. I mean, because Melbourne in, mm-hmm. in Melbourne mm-hmm. in New York, it's it's mm-hmm. a majority black. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say majority black, but a, a sizable mm-hmm. black population. Mm-hmm. And then um, which now there has been some gentrification in that area. Yes. So that has changed. And, a little and bit. we always had a mixture, though. I will yeah. tell you yeah. in, in Melbourne, there was always a mixture. You had um, many different ethnicities mm-hmm. and people lived together. Mm-hmm. Um but I will say that, you know, um, I also went to Catholic school mm-hmm. for high mm-hmm. school. And so, mm-hmm. again, more mixture. So I, I feel like I've I've I'm privileged to have been exposed mm-hmm. to um, to many different people. Mm-hmm. That is such it's such a big thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, it was only until I went to college, mm-hmm. surprisingly, and I went to college in New York City, mm-hmm. but it was like being in a, in a room where I was the only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that and that was that was shocking. I was mm-hmm. like, "What?" <laughs> but but um, yeah. So well, living here, you you do kind of adjust to that a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, even though there is more integration, my the biggest shock here was mm-hmm. the amount of integration, and that our neighbors were were white. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling my parents like that I was scared, like I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. So in Chicago, white and especially at that time, white and black people did not live. Really? Next, oh no! My, wow. No did not live next door to each other. They didn't usually live within a certain, like, block radius. There's, like, edges of neighborhoods. So, like, 79th Street, you can go to 83rd, which the the numbers are, you know, chronological. You can go to 83rd and maybe just cross over Western, and you're in Beverly in, like, a beautiful area with really nice homes and you know, quality schools. And this is literally walking distance mm-hmm. from where most of the crime in Chicago happens. So it's it's really interesting how it's like the crime is really neighborhood based. Wow. So when you how long did it take for you to sort of acclimate? Like there were so many new things. The school was mm-hmm. new. The neighbors were new. The environment was different. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, <clears throat> excuse me, how did you um, finally settle in? Mm. I think it was, I had so many personal things mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. that it was almost like moving here was, it was a relief because we, I got a break from the violence. Mm. I also got to see a different way of living. Mm -hmm. And despite me being afraid of my neighbors, they were not afraid of me, which that was the first time that I had experienced that. So, and then going to school and having, you know, the white kids actually be friendly to us, you know, not be mean, not calling us the N word. Like it was, it was a complete change over what I experienced in Chicago. Chicago was a lot of demoralization. Our principal saying completely rude things to my sister and I that we would never amount to anything. And that was in the private school? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She told us that we would only ever be, you know, N-words, like all of this. So for me, that completely changed my mindset about what I wanted to do education-wise and and the kind of person I wanted to be. Most of my life, you know, was spent kind of trying to prove that this woman wrong, to prove that she was incorrect about me. So that was almost like that first level trauma. Yeah. Because... You know, you, 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 you listen to those trusted adults in your life who speak those words. Either they're speaking words of uplift mm-hmm. or they're speaking words of negativity. And to think a principal of a school that you're mm-hmm. paying yes. to attend. Mm-hmm. Oh, but they were very clear that we were not welcome. We couldn't take the bus. Oh, oh yeah. And after school, if my mom couldn't pick us up, most of the other kids, if their parents were late, there was like a room in the basement in the back where kids would hang out until their parents come. We couldn't hang out there. We had to sit on the front steps and wait. So it ended up being my mom coming from downtown couldn't get to us in time, you know, to get out of school. So either my uncle or my uh, my step grandfather would pick us up from from school and bring us home just mm. because we we couldn't take the bus or, you know, yeah. Wow, you know, I was not expecting to hear that about Chicago. I I don't know. I mean, I I 
listen, I have an awareness of the, the things that ha- exist and the challenges and the barriers. But the fact is, you're relatively young. Mm-hmm. So in putting a time frame around this, we're looking at a relatively just a few years. We're talking the 80s and 90s. Exactly. Yeah. So we're not talking like 1950, no. 1960. Jim Crow was done. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have that's your first layer, right? So as as little a little girl, you are already battling these these voices that have been spoken to you mm-hmm. already whittling away at your self esteem. Mm-hmm. You come to Pittsville, and in Pittsville, you see another way of life. You make friends, I presume. Mm-hmm. You make friends. Mm-hmm. You build a community. Yep. Um. Which high school did you go to? PHS. You went to PHS. Okay. Um, and then, when and which year did you get here, like, for high school? So so I went to, her at the time that I went to PHS, yeah. Herberg Middle School was actually being redesigned. Okay. So I went to high school for eighth grade. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Even though we would have been at Reed, but we actually... Um, moved from mm-hmm. where we, we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents divorced or yeah. separated maybe at the end of eighth grade, I yeah. think. So by the time we were ready to start school in ninth grade, we had already moved to another side of town, which put us in the Herberg mm. um, district. But Herberg was closed, so we ended up just going to mm. um, PHS, which was, I thought it was actually kind of nice because I got to matriculate with the same people yeah. for, for five years. So most of the people that I went to high school with, I'm still friends with in some way, or even if not daily talking friends, were on social media, which obviously social media has changed. That. Yes. You know, previously, I would say, you know, before there was MySpace mm-hmm. or anything, once we left school, a lot of people lost contact. Right. And then because <laughs> of the medias, you know. Oh, MySpace. <laughs> I know. Tom. I know, Tom. Right. <laughs> Yeah, those were the old yeah, days in that's the beginning. Right. That's right. Where in order to have a social media page, you had to know a little bit of coding, right? You know, mm-hmm. to create it, or you had to be able to Google right. codes and yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. that seems so archaic now. It's like what? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I so you you have this level of stability, and I think it's almost like the precursor before everything starts mm-hmm. to just get really Mm -hmm. deep for you Mm -hmm. because I think the college years for you um, and maybe your sister a little bit but I'll just focus on you right now they were hard oh yeah oh yeah I mean hard hard enough to where I didn't finish you know I left two months before graduation so yeah Mm. do you want to go into a little bit about why that journey was a little bit Yeah, so I experienced um, an assault in college, so that made, you know, things pretty difficult. Um, Yeah, I felt I was very depressed. I struggled a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, my last year, I had moved back from being at UMass Boston to going to uh, Westfield again. Mm -hmm. And there was just so many memories, you know, being there, and it was just a very heavy experience for me. And Mm -hmm. at a lot of points, I tried to just keep you know, pushing through, pushing through, pushing through. And I think at one point I got to a place where I wasn't going to class. I was going to the bar. Hmm. (laughs) So instead of being in class, you know, I was out drinking or, you know, just do things that I thought would make me feel better, would Mm -hmm. make me forget, would Mm -hmm. take some of the the edge off. Um, So thankfully that didn't become a life habit of, of drinking. But I did you know, have a lot of therapy, Mm -hmm. a lot of support by friends. And I know initially sometimes my response to to trauma is to kind of go within. Yeah. Right. And to kind of push everyone out and just think, I just need I just need to push through. Mm -hmm. I just need to get through this. I can just keep going. But eventually those things start to surface up. Right. So when I got to the point where I was considering, am I going to stay in school? You know, what what am I going to do? I was at a very low point, and I was considering um, suicide. So I used to drive on the back road from um, my mom's house, which she lived on April Lane at Mm -hmm. that time. So I would drive on the back road over Washington Mountain to get to Westfield. So I loved doing, like, little off-road trips. I had a little 98, like, Eagle Summit. (laughs) It was, like, Mm -hmm. this cute little standard um, stick shift car. And so I used to drive a lot. So I used to see, like, pretty roads. And, you know, some of those back roads have sharp turns and, like, cliffs. And I I I said to myself, I I don't think that I would be, you know, the person who could do something like 
really aggressively harmful yeah. to myself. But I said it would be easy to just turn the wheel and close my eyes, you know, and mm. then it's just it's just done. Was the pain um, in, in that moment? Did you feel overcome? I felt hopeless. Hopeless. Yeah. Did you tell did your sister know? Did anyone know? So I my friends knew because I did end up in a situation with the person who assaulted me. Um, where there was a little bit of stalking on campus. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the campus security knew me. My teachers knew me because I started to have migraines and seizures around mm -hmm. that time, too. So it was a lot. Stress majorly impacts health for me. So because that was such a, a stressful time, it was like it was... It was oozing out of me, mm. you know. It was just... It was, it was pouring out of me musically. You know, I actually... Some of my... I, I was writing so much mm -hmm. all the time. I spent so much of my time in the practice rooms. And I remember going to one of my really good friends, um, Omar, and I said to him that I was going to be leaving school. And so he was like, you know, what's going on? What's up? And I was like, it's just too much. You know, I can't really do it. Mm -hmm. And so he hugged me and I started crying. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, okay, like, let's just go talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'm just going to head home. He was like, no, you're going to a therapist. Right. So he literally dragged me across campus at Westfield get into the therapist's office, and, I mean, I just started just just weeping, you know. And so I don't know what it was, but I, I opened up to this the therapist. I don't even remember if it was a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. like I was just so so heavy in emotion. Yeah. And so we were, like, sitting on the floor just crying. And so I don't, it was, I don't know if that release made me feel like, okay, things will be okay. Mm -hmm. And the therapist said, it's okay if you leave school mm. if it's going to keep you alive. Because I kept thinking, if I drop out of school, I had left Bible college, mm -hmm. you know, my and my, my family didn't like that. Mm -hmm. There were people at my church who were gossiping about me because of leaving, you know, Bible college. Yeah. Someone who told me, you know, that I was messing up my life, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It was like, for them leaving that one school meant failure. And I was like, well, I'm not dropping out of school. I'm just leaving Bible college. Right. I, I went to BCC after that. But, you know, for people in the religious community, it was like to leave that school mm -hmm. was like, you know, a big offense. Right. So I think I felt a lot of, a lot of shame, too, yeah. because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what if they were right? Mm. Had I not left Bible college, he and I probably would have broken up. Mm. We wouldn't have stayed together. And, and even now, I will say to myself, if I would have stayed, what would how different my life would right. have been. You know, I probably would have graduated. But I also say maybe I wouldn't be in the career that I am now because making that shift out of Bible college right. kind of opened up the doors that I had later versus had I been in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of opportunities that happen mm. between 18 and 22 that I would not have you know, experience good and bad. Mm. Um, so my my friend, you know, Omar, which I actually um, sang at his wedding. My sister and I wrote a song for he and his wife last year. Yeah. And, you know, he saved my life. And in many ways, in that abusive relationship, I actually had such a good core group of friends mm -hmm. um, at Westfield. I had a friend, Oliver, Joseph, and Omar were kind of my, my core. Mm -hmm. um, and they were protectors. It was like they just jumped into being big brothers. It mm -hmm. was... You know, I didn't initially tell them what happened. It wasn't until some of the stalking started happening on campus and Omar was um, an RA. So obviously as things are going on mm -hmm. in the dorms, yeah. he gets notified and things. So it was that was definitely a challenging time. But so much of my life, I, I look at as I've always been surrounded by people who were willing to mm to give to me and to to invest, mm. you know, whether it mm -hmm. was and many times. It, and I would say it really was never financially, but it was mostly people investing emotionally in me because that's kind of where I was depleted, really, yeah. you know. So, you know, you had two months remaining, mm -hmm. you know, with your, your, your college education. Mm -hmm. You must have had a conversation with your mom about it. So, well... I feel like my because of all of my experience when I was 18, I did move out and I just kind of went into independence. You okay. know, I never looked back. I never went mm. back home. Mm -hmm. I paid for my own college. OK. Um, so in terms of financially, my mom didn't really have a say so much in that because I was I was taking care of everything. myself. Right. Um, right. So she, of course, did not like it. And I, I I don't really remember when I told her mm -hmm. Um what happened but it was it was definitely many years um later mm -hmm. so i was probably 
I don't know, I may have been already engaged, you know, yeah. with my um, ex-husband by the time I said something to her about it. So, yeah, she wasn't really involved um, as much in that. Please note that this episode contains discussions on domestic violence, sexual assault, and suicide. For Berkshire County residents who have been impacted by domestic and sexual violence, please reach out to the Elizabeth Freeman Center at 1-866-401-2425. For those outside of this area, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Also, if you or someone you know has suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So let's talk a little bit about that because you just brought up the ex-husband and Mm -hmm. after after college there there are a few years that Mm -hmm. there's the heavy i call Mm -hmm. it the heavy Mm -hmm. because you got married Mm -hmm. you got divorced Mm -hmm. and then you became homeless for a short while Mm -hmm. um considering the depression that you had experienced during your college years Mm um how did this impact you and not just like take you down um family mm-hmm. you know my my aunt has always been a huge supporter mm-hmm. and you know it always seems kind of like when i was in the moments of being my my lowest my aunt was you know always there mm-hmm. just ready and willing mm-hmm. you know and never never throwing things in your face mm-hmm. never making you feel bad but it was always you know just supportive yeah so I think that having that support system yeah. was imperative to survival. And when you were homeless, I mean, literally, does that mean like without a home? Yes. Yeah. So Sherelle and I used she was in Howard at the time. She was going for her um, master's degree. Yeah. So we lived in Hyattsville, Maryland, in a place called Cypress Creek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we couldn't afford our rent. My ex-husband at the time, I mean... He would, like, come to my job, and, and, you know, it got to the point where I couldn't really work anymore. So there was harassment? Oh, yeah. He didn't want me talking to other men. He didn't, you know, just anything. Mm -hmm. I was pregnant at the time, and so I had struggled in getting pregnant, so I decided to stay home. His thing was he he felt I was too independent, Mm -hmm. and he wanted for me to just, like, stay home and let him take care of things. Mm -hmm. So initially, I was always like, no, I don't think you're capable, which is kind of mean to say now. But I was right. (laughs) So I stopped working. Mm -hmm. He stopped paying the rent. I don't know what he was doing. He, I don't know if he had another girl or what was going on. Um, So I ended up having a miscarriage, you know, and he told me that I I lost his baby. And and that was kind of the beginning of a really big division uh, between us. He became very aggressive, very abusive. So many times my sister and him had an apartment together. Mm-hmm. And so many times she would intervene or if her boyfriend was there, he would intervene and kind of like step in place. So I remember one time he was upset with me about something. I don't even remember what it was. And so he was like running through the house trying to find me. So I went into my sister's room and got under her bed and like hid mm-hmm. under the bed. Mm-hmm. So he's pounding on the door, like screaming, open up, open up. My sister, you know, hears him. She comes out and breaks a glass against the wall and was pretty much like, you know, I'm not going to let you get to her. Yeah. So our neighbors end up calling the police. And so then he ends up, you know, leaving. He did come back. And but it was like a couple days later. Um, And so by then I had had the miscarriage. He wasn't paying the the bills. He had stopped paying our electric, so we had no no heat, no hot water. So I'm pregnant and hungry, can't eat. Mm-hmm. My sister had a friend from Howard, and actually some of her friends would rotate bringing us ice and bringing us food so that we could put it into our cooler because we still had the apartment, but we didn't have you know electricity. So we decided to move instead of like being evicted or yeah. something. So. We would sleep in my sister's car. Oftentimes, we would go to the social work library because there was a bathroom on the upper floor that had um, a handicapped stall that had a sink in it. Yeah. So we got a gym membership. I can't remember the name of the gym, but it was in Hyattsville. Yeah. And it was $35 a month. So because we're twins, we would alternate. So because <laughs> they give you an ID card. And so she would take the card, go in there to shower, do her hair because she's still going to school 
during all of this. So we end up talking to my dad who finds it. And I don't know why Sherelle and I were so like about protecting each other. We didn't include our parents. I, 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 this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, thought, I'm an adult. I can do this. Yeah. See yeah. that you actually tapped into the question that I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And I said, I have to ask it because you came from a family mm-hmm. That was connected together wise. Like, even though your parents are separated, like, Mm -hmm. you you came from this family. What prevented you from saying, I'm drowning right now. I need help. I think we had a lot of a lot of trauma growing up, you know, when I was I was assaulted very young. And, you know, that's I'll only share my my aspect of experience with that. But there was a lot of for me, um, I had done a lot of self-raising and a lot of like, um, monitoring my own emotions. Mm. I remember when I was eight and there was someone who was going to our church. He was 13. And, you know, I had, I was developing. Mm -hmm. I started my period at like nine. Mm -hmm. So I had breasts already. So he liked me and would touch me. And I felt confused about it Mm -hmm. because even though I was eight, if someone's touching you, obviously it's going to feel good. And I liked that he was older Mm. and that he liked me. But it wasn't until things physically started happening that I was like, okay, well, this and I didn't, I didn't put together because you're a little girl. Yes, I was a child. So you were a I child. Didn't put that together. I there is My like sister self-monitored during that that time. It's like yeah. you were a child yeah. and you don't know any mm-hmm. better. Yeah, and my parents had yeah. a rough marriage, so I think I always felt that they were they had too much going on, and I didn't want to burden them now as an adult I realized that was a trauma response right you know from being a child thinking I don't want to make them feel the way that I feel Mm. you know and so my sister and I actually tried to we wrote up a contract to give to this guy to have him sign stating that he would not molest me anymore that he wouldn't do anything like that and my previous experience with trying to reach out had been even if you say something, you know, no one's going to help you. Because I remember telling my parents I didn't want to go to his house. I didn't want to hang out with him. But my dad had an outreach program at the church for, um, like, people who were in recovery. Yeah. So he was the son of somebody that came. And I felt like their concern was was us not seeming like we were being arrogant or we didn't want to be around them because, you know, which I, was, I didn't think of anything like that. I just didn't want him to yeah. touch yes. me. But I didn't, at that time, I I was immature, obviously. And I felt like, if I tell you I don't want to go over there, and I'm serious, why can't you just listen to me? I felt like I shouldn't have to tell you right. he, he's molesting me for you to, to listen. So I developed anger with them early on. So it was very difficult for me to go and to talk to them and to share, because my mindset at that time was, you didn't care about me then, so why do you care about me now? And mm. I realize now that that was wrong I didn't give them the opportunity but I didn't know any better you didn't know any better yeah so Sherelle and I kind of self-police we would self-monitor so we kind of made packs about not the bathroom was in the basement so we made packs about not going to the bathroom alone mm-hmm. if they were having choir rehearsal our goal was to stay like upstairs to never go downstairs and if I had to go to the bathroom she would come with me so then one day my dad decides after choir rehearsal that he wants to take all the kids to see a movie so we go to the movie theater, mm-hmm. and I had to go to the bathroom. And I thought, okay, there's it's a public place. Like, yeah. Everything is going to be be fine. So I go to the bathroom, and then I peek my head out the door, and I see him, like, standing out there. And so I was like, oh, crap. So I go back in the bathroom. So finally, it was like 10, 15 minutes goes by. I assume he's probably left. He would be Still tired there. of waiting. So I asked the woman, is there a young, you know, guy sitting outside? And she was like, oh, no, I didn't see anyone. Mm-hmm. So I walk out the back, the movie theater. I don't remember where it was, but the movies, the it was like the basement. It was two stairwells that came down like mm-hmm. on the opposite side. Mm-hmm. And you went upstairs to get to where all of the, the theaters were. Yeah. So I opened the door. I didn't see him. I tried to make a beeline up the stairs. I have no idea where he came from. Ran up the stairs, grabs me by my leg and drags me back down the stairs. So he gets up on top of me, has my hair, grabs me by the back of my hair, throws me against the wall and proceeds to put his hand in my pants. Oh, gosh. So I start screaming like, you know, bloody murder for someone to come down. Movie, the movie um, theater 
people came down and saw what he was doing and was just like, oh, crap, and just walked away, and no one came back. So pretty much it was me down there. I, I may have been 9 or 10 at the time, just fighting against him, against the wall. And he, and even though he wasn't that much older than me, he was taller, he was bigger, he yeah. was stronger. Because, I again, when it started, I was 8, and he was already like 12 or thir 13. Um, so by this time, I'm 10, he's a teenager. So we... Um, so you were literally assaulted in a movie theater. In a movie theater, oh yeah. And people saw, oh yeah. And no one helped. Mm -hmm. And as a child, again, you're seeing people come, look, and then walk away. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that I, if anyone's going to protect me, it will always be be me. And so I was very young. When mm. I that. And that was. And that's what influenced yeah, why. All of my decisions after that. That would yeah. make sense because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess if you experience something as traumatic and raw as this, then you would. Um, you would definitely have those guardrails in oh, place yeah. Oh yeah, and say like, no one's ever going to like come close Never. to me yeah. and hurt me mm -hmm. again. And ironically, I ended up being with a series of long relationships where I experienced the exact same thing. Well, isn't that what they say when yeah. you go through trauma? Um, you almost attract yeah. that, mm -hmm. whatever that yeah. thing is, mm -hmm. you attract it because it's almost like that's all, you know, mm -hmm. For me, I think it started mm. with the idea of I don't want to carry this baggage from this previous relationship mm. into another. So my thought was always, he hasn't done anything. So even when you see the signs, well, he's never hit me. He's never done blah, blah, blah. And it was always, I felt like I couldn't just assume because someone had the behaviors and the patterns of an abuser that they right. were an abuser. I would have to wait until they did something because... I dated someone who, it turns out, was an abuser, and when they would do things, they would tell me, you're letting your, your trauma impact our relationship. So then I was like, okay, maybe I, I am. And it turns out, no. It was gaslighting. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, until there's a certain amount of, for me, it was a lot of therapy, a lot of mm. talking with other women who had been through it, not suffering in silence, not because there was a lot of shame for me, and especially with the assault that happened um in, in college after high school because it was like someone who I trusted, someone that I knew, someone that I grew up with. So it was definitely not something in a mute. And, and I had told him what happened to me as a kid. And I even said to him, you know, I never want you to do this. I'm trusting that you would never do this to me. You know, we explicitly had that conversation. So that's why it was even more of a violation you know, when that when that did happen, mm. I felt a lot of a lot of shame, a lot of um, just personal um, mm. fault. Mm. Wow. Um, for my listeners just tuning in, um, my guest today is Chantel McFarlane. Um, and she she's a local performer, but she right now is sharing her powerful truth of um, a journey, mm. a long journey of trauma, but also um, her pathway to healing. Mm. And um, we just thank her for her um, transparency and being vulnerable mm. with us uh, today. So, wow. Um, wow. So with all of that, um, how did you ever learn to trust mm. and love again I feel like for me that probably started my ability to be at least willing to be vulnerable with someone probably didn't happen until after I was 30 mm -hmm. so it was it was over a decade you know of of recovering and just crappy relationships or just bad you know decisions in who to date um, it took a long time, and I think it was, I actually had a relationship <laughs> with someone who I dated p publicly, let's say, a few years ago, and a lot of people would kind of, you know, bash him online, or they thought, you know, people would say that they thought he looked crazy, or blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. However, he was my my first positive, you know, mindset of a relationship, right. and so many people would would have things to say, and even after we broke up, so I was very surprised at how many people commented 
negatively, like that they were happy that we had broken up, you know, in some way. And so, however, they didn't know, you know, the the path of healing mm-hmm. that dating him, you know, started me on. He was safe. Mm. You know, I could tell him things if something was going on. And let's say if I was afraid of something or I'm out somewhere, literally, I could just send, you know, an, an SOS text, mm. you know, and within minutes, you mm. know. So for me, and it was the, the safety of being able to have a difference of opinion, mm-hmm. the safety of being able to say, I don't like when you do that and not having, you know, to, to, to duck a fist, mm. you know, so... It was I think it was it was really being in a safe relationship that opened my eyes that let me see it exists. Exactly. And how much I had accepted from other people just because I didn't know that it existed. And so it was like a scale of trauma. So sometimes I would look and say, "Okay, this person may yell or they may scream. They they may curse. But at least he hasn't raped me. Mm. At least he hasn't beat me. You know, and so it created an um, an inequitable way of measuring safety in a relationship. And it wasn't until I experienced truly being safety, which truly being safe, that I was able to see how much everything else had not been safe. And I feel like I was able to attract someone who was healthy enough yeah. to show me a safe relationship because I had put in that work. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm, I realize when I'm guarded. And I'm that way. The only people that I'm going to attract are the people that, you know, are are not good for me. Because a healthy man wasn't going to look at me and think, wow, let me, you know, fix this Mm -hmm. broken bird. I was too broken. You know, I think sometimes there's a certain amount that men do like to come along and feel like that they're helping you. Right. That they're, you know, your hero, Mm -hmm. you're your protector. Mm -hmm. But... you you kind of have to already be be molded it in some way. So it seems know? like <clears throat> seems like you were committed to you you wanted to do the work yeah. of that self healing. Yeah. Um, tell me about how therapy played a role in your journey. It's I'm still in therapy. Okay, you know, so it's for me it's it's a, a continuous thing where it's realizing patterns, mm. you know, and and learning the learning to remove the shame, right? Mm-hmm. Because being silent had made me feel very ashamed. I felt ashamed at how my my life went. I felt ashamed for dropping out of school. You know, in my family, education was very important. My sister has a doctorate degree, a master's degree. My mother has a master's. My father has two doctorates mm-hmm. and a master's. Mm-hmm. So for me to not even have a BA, you know, that was like, that. All, then I felt guilty about that. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was just so many things that just kind of piled up. But it was being willing to start the process of of letting that go and trusting you know that that things will will be okay hmm. if i don't hold on to that sometimes carrying baggage is you get so used to it it's you're used to having that monkey on your back mm-hmm. once the monkey's gone your back feels exposed right. now i'm like anybody can hurt me versus you realize that pain isn't protecting you the pain is attracting more pain oh uh, isn't that something killing you you need to say that again yeah. because it's almost like the pain kind of becomes a comforter yeah yeah and you get you get really used to the pain Mm -hmm. and you normalize it Mm. yeah and then things that become let's say things that challenge yeah on unhealthiness become uncomfortable because Mm. you're so used to being in this in this negative place it's like if you have someone who's constantly negative when they get around people that are positive they're going to talk negative about the positive people right instead of saying let me allow that to to challenge what's what's holding me yes yes yeah oh oh boy um and along the way with your journey with the journey and the soul the the instances of trauma that we see the pockets of healing you also had some very real life health scares Mm -hmm. cancer Mm -hmm. cancer scares Mm -hmm. so it was it's kind of started with my grandmother Mm -hmm. um she didn't survive um, um, my mother has faced cancer many, many times. So my sister has faced cancer, you know, and then it was obviously my, <laughs> my turn. So n- thankfully, obviously I'm benign. I do still have masses, you know, in my breast that we monitor very often. Um, and it's actually ironic. My sister recently has, a, a mass that is the exact same size and almost in the exact same position in the same breast. You know, so obviously we're looking into the genetic factors there. Um, So, yeah, I think for me, that was also a point and that happened just before COVID started. Mm -hmm. Um, So COVID was really, I kind of feel like the beginning of the 
the unwinding mm-hmm. and, and a major wave of, of healing for me mm. because I was able to just kind of relax and sit back. I wasn't working. I was temporarily laid off. I did a lot of hiking. Mm-hmm. I just spent a lot of quality time mm-hmm. with like a close you know group of, of people. I it was just a time of self discovery and yeah. just doing what I wanted to do. So you know, um, so we're we're friends on 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 mm-hmm. social media, and um, you post a lot about your journey. You're mm-hmm. very transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you would have done a few years ago versus no. now? Mm-hmm. Mm. No, because I would have my my ultimate fear has been people knowing me or, mm-hmm. or pitying me. Mm-hmm. And I actually just had this conversation with my therapist and she was like, Chantel, no one who knows you is going to pity you. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to tell her like, this is I'm strong presenting now. Yeah. You know, I'm outgoing now. But if people who knew me during the, those hurt phases who saw the brokenness and just how 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 sad, you know, I was. Sometimes I do wish that my friends could have an inkling into that because there there are times that I feel exhausted of 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 presenting strong because people often think you don't need anything mm-hmm. because you're always so strong. Or people message me, oh you're always giving encouraging, you know, messages and I love reading your your, your post, not realizing sometimes that enlightenment that sharing came out of maybe being in a dark place for a week and I got to a place where something happened and you know I, I let it out. I'm I'm venting the years of anguish mm. and years of heaviness. And sometimes I do have moments where I'm just like on the couch. I just I just can't do anything. You know, I'm just I'm just heavy. Yeah. I'm in my thoughts or I'm just, you know, I'll watch TV and just like cry, cry, mm. cry. Because I realize there's many times in my life that I don't allow myself to experience emotion in that way or to experience um, pain in a non-angry way Mm. or pain in a non-self-sabotaging way. Okay. You know, so for me, a lot of those those posts are coming out of revelation. Yeah. Or... So, or I think sometimes people think if you go through all of these things, if you experience brokenness, that you can't be successful. Hmm. And so when I share with people, often they're very surprised and they're like, yeah, but look at you, you know. But for me, a lot of that was trauma pushed me through. Right. Right. Because I I didn't want for people to be right about me. Mm. I wanted to be successful. And I also felt a call to legacy because mm-hmm. of my, my family. Mm-hmm. Thinking of my grandmother being in the field to my mom now working in a downtown office with all white people. How could I drop that legacy? Mm-hmm. So there was mm-hmm. pressure there, which which helped me and what was, was positive, mm-hmm. but that also added to some of mm. the heaviness. Um, mm. So it was definitely, it's been a journey. And I often find for me, sharing is is healing for me and then also so many people i mean i get negative people that message me you know saying that they're tired of seeing me in their news feed i used to just tell them block me yeah you have to message me and say this you could just block me right you You can unfollow you can do any of those things any of those those things um it takes a lot of bravery um and courage to be able to share and to speak the things that were, you know, unthinkable mm-hmm. and so painful. I think, you know, sometimes when people, because you're right, like if people, someone looks at you today, they see someone is put together, mm-hmm. you know, you have you have found love again, mm-hmm. um, you're really <laughs> happy. Mm-hmm. And um, and so people say, well, not knowing your story, well, what could she possibly know mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. struggle? What could mm-hmm. she possibly know about? How, and you, you've gone through a lot, like you just don't know you've you've experienced it oh yeah in a major way and that's the thing about looking at a uh, judging a book by mm-hmm. the cover right you see the everything's all put together mm-hmm. but sometimes you just need to maybe open it up mm-hmm. and like check out those table of contents mm-hmm. yep. right because we <laughs> yeah, all those that's right because yeah. we're all wrapped up and we all have you know we we all are put together but mm-hmm. there's always something deeper going mm-hmm. on with all of us a mass that we kind of you know present to mm-hmm. people Especially for me and, and having been in, in corporate settings, mm. and, you know, there's a certain way that you have to present. And then as an African-American mm-hmm. woman, mm-hmm. there's a certain way that I have to present because I can't be a six-figure earner. I can't be broken. Mm-hmm. I can't be at work cursing and yelling at people. No. Right? So there's, no. Like, right? no. That's not going to be a thing. Right. So there's, there's a certain amount yeah. of... of 
recovery that that had to happen mm. in order for me to continue with the, the legacy. I saw that early on mm-hmm. and some of the work I did early on, but there was still a lot more that needed to be, you know, unpacked. Mm. Okay. All right. Um one thing, you, you mentioned the success in your career. Would you say that you don't, you know, even though you weren't able to finish your degree, you obviously have found, you just mentioned oh, yeah. some numbers, mm-hmm. you obviously have found some level of success. Yeah. That yeah. is good. Yeah. Okay, very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. So I think for me, it was finding, like, what right. am I good at? Mm-hmm. Because I said, okay, I, I didn't finish school. Right. And I made the decision early on, like, that that wasn't going to mm-hmm. hold me back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, with everything that I have, you know, I want to fight for success. I want to fight to be financially independent and I saw my sister with her degree rising to a certain amount of success Mm -hmm. but still having student loans Mm. so then I said to myself okay if I get to that level of success and let's say I'm making six figures or multiple six figures but I have three hundred thousand dollars in student loans I'm still living poor Mm. you know and I feel that I can't I can't do the things that I want to do Mm -hmm. or be be the person in giving that I want to be if I'm struggling to take care of myself. So I owe it to the people that I want to help, to the people that I want to to help in the way that I've been been helped. It it almost feels like a, a, a calling to be you know, a help to be a support, yes. to give back because so much has been given to me right. that it feels selfish, it feels tight, it mm. feels unhealing to hold on to that mm. you know so for me that was my motivation in in finding avenues and different careers mm-hmm. that I could do or work my way into so that without having the degree I could still have you know a modicum of success and you obviously have and yeah. and and that's to you know because I always say it's not the degree itself it's having a plan yes you know having a plan to be able to accelerate in one's career, whatever that looks mm-hmm. like. And we need people in all professions, but mm-hmm. it's just being focused about what you want and mm-hmm. then going after it with exactly. all that you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So whew. <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, mm. you, you're a performer. Mm-hmm. So you're obviously always in this mode of creativity when you're not performing and when you want to just continue to let off steam and sort of be in that mode mm-hmm. of just rest and relax. What do you do? So I do meditation. It's okay. something that I do a lot of. Also just, you know, sitting with my thoughts, even mm-hmm. if I'm not meditating on clearing my head and just being present, sometimes it's sitting with my thoughts, allowing myself to, mm-hmm. to think things that maybe I would have previously shut down and be like, okay, I don't, I don't have time to, to dig into that. Mm. Allowing those things to come up. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time, obviously, with um, with Joe and yeah. with his kids. So that you know, being and, a and, and Joe is things. for for My every fiance. Okay, there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 So you know, and Joe has been a huge part of, mm-hmm. of the healing journey. He's a person who, where I have not experienced before, where usually I've when I'm sad or going through a tough time I've dated people who would just kind of leave me alone and just Mm -hmm. let me sit in a room Joe is the person who if I'm sitting on the couch crying watching Ayanla fix my life he's going to come on the floor in front of me and 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 hug me and say you know what's going on what is it about this show that's making you cry and then if I'm just like nothing I'm just watching TV he's like no (laughs) what's going you know and so he 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 sits with me um in dark places. Yeah. And so and that's something that I had not experienced. And even that alone, even it's not his responsibility to to heal me. However, he can assist my journey instead of holding it back, which is previously what I had experienced in my healing journey. Mm. Um, and even in times, you know, that I was dating a minister and also experienced violence, you know, mm. with him. And that was someone who I expected to be helpful and healing on my my journey because he he knew so much about me mm. and knew me my entire mm-hmm. life you know and so when violence entered into that relationship you know for me that I think was a wake-up call that there were signs still in that that I ignored so I was like okay my work isn't done mm-hmm. you know I'm still making bad choices mm. so sometimes it was just realizing I wasn't done and just going back to the, the, the drawing board and saying, okay, what else is mm. there? What's still there? And being a step parent for me has brought out things too that I need to continue to work on. So 
it's it's wonderful because Joe gives me the space and the latitude to do that, but he's also like, let me come alongside yeah. you. How can I help you? How can I support you? Um, well, yeah. I'm glad you found your Joe. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you, as we wrap this up, if you had to choose one word to describe you, what would that be? Hmm. Persistent. Hmm. I like that. Um, listeners, um, we just want to thank Chantel for mm. her honesty, her transparency, um, sharing her journey. And, you know, if if anyone out there is mm. going through something, tell someone, mm-hmm. don't suffer in silence. Um, there are always um, individuals to help Um bring you out mm-hmm. um and so that you you can know that there is hope in mm-hmm. a new day all right so we just thank you again Chantel. no problem thank you for having me you're welcome all right everyone you've been listening to backstory let's hear it on wtbrfm pittsville with roberta mccullough dues of the mayor's office in the city of pittsville thanks for listening everyone and have a great day For Berkshire County residents who have been impacted by domestic and sexual violence, please reach out to the Elizabeth Freeman Center at 1-866-401-2425. For those outside of this area, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Also, if you or someone you know has suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline.